This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight's show is called Sustainable Agriculture, Blue Carbon and the Green Revolution. It's all about food and sequestering carbon in plants, which I think all of you by now will know is very important to counteract climate change. Our first guest is Elena Garcia. She's a cattle farmer, and we'll talk to her by phone from far north Queensland. She says cattle help in getting the grassland to store carbon. And then we'll have Quinn Olivier. He's an ecology and a PhD student. His obsession is mangroves, salt marshes, and I think he'll tell us that they sequester even more uh, carbon than Elena's grasslands or the normal kind of tree sequestration. And lastly, we've got an old-fashioned radio drama for you. Professor Emerita Pamela Pym is giving us a talk about the Green Revolution. So thanks very much to Andy and Kurt who've helped me with this program, and I think we'll go straight to Elena Garcia. Hello, Elena. Hello, Judy. Oh, good to hear your voice. Elena, um, I'm telling, I'll tell the listeners a bit about your book. Elena is the co-author of a new book called Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed. She's a cattle farmer and firefighter in Western Queensland and she's keen to build bridges between city people who eat the food and the rural Australians who are producing it. Alan Broughton, her co-author, is by her side and I'd like to welcome you both to the Beyond Zero radio show. Um, hi. Uh, so, El- Elena, city people, you're trying to bridge the gap. I think uh, city people, now that the um, Bush Telegraph program and various other things on the radio don't bring much news about the country, city people are just hearing things, uh, sort of motherhood things. When we had recent fly- floods up, up in Queensland and New South Wales and fires in New South Wales, the media didn't connect the dots about climate change, you know, the emissions that have caused the intensity of those weather events. We hear stories about, you know, how heartbreaking it is to lose all your crops and how good people are rallying around to each other, but they never say but there's a lot of fueling behind this that, that we could prevent. It's out of the news now, but I'm guessing that what has happened recently in the extreme weather events around the Cyclone Debbie will have been the last straw for some of some farmers up there. Can you just fill us in about how it's affected people? Well, Cyclone Debbie is just another devastation of crops. 
Um, it's now our reality as farmers and as, as every person in Australia that there are more intense and more regular climate disasters. So we just have to learn to deal with that. And if we want resilient farmers producing food sustainably, we need to get a national government insurance scheme set up to assist farmers to replant and to assist homeowners to rebuild who take sensible precautions. Um, we've got to stop zoning floodplains and turn them back into either parkland or urban farms. Yeah, well, climate change is getting a lot of people thinking now about this and they're worried that will we be able to grow enough food as the weather becomes more damaging and unpredictable? And I think uh, you might like to tell us the, some of the things. You've given some thought to you know, future policy. What things need to be changed for us to have food security? Well, Australia has more than 40% of marginal land and we really need to take advantage of it. At the moment, it's grazed by livestock. And what that does is turns vegetation in places where there's not regular rain and there's not generally good soil into high-quality protein. And at the same time, it manages the fire risk. Now, you look at uh, our carbon accounting, and what they don't take any account of is wildfires because they're considered to be an act of nature. And they, can, they contribute up to a third of our carbon emissions every year. And yet when people complain about the emissions, the methane emissions of livestock, they don't factor in that if you graze down the vegetation, you don't get the big wildfires, the, the, the damage that they do is much reduced um, because you don't have the fuel that's built up on the ground that then gets the logs, fallen logs and things burning. And that's what really pumps the carbon out. So, unfortunately, the statistics are very skewed um, and you don't see the reality of, yes, because of, of climate change, the temperatures are hotter, the ground dries out more quickly, and so it's much more flammable. And bushfire management is something that livestock play a key role in. I think you must have seen a lot of fires as you're a firefighter yourself. And... Uh what are your thoughts about preventing those massive fires, those out-of-control bushfires? You know, it seems to be something, some preemptive work has to be done. What, what can be done? Well, the, the, bush, the rural fire brigades do a very good job in hazard reduction management. And what people don't realise is that we do have an, an ecology in Australia that's been built around fire, uh, the Aboriginal people of this, of this nation managed this country with fire for 40,000 years um, and they created a landscape that was um, very much um, pasture and forest. They protected food growing areas and they did a lot of hunting. Um, and when uh, Europeans colonised here, we saw the parklands and thought it was wonderful and we didn't realise how actively the Aboriginal people managed it. And we then proceeded to use European methods that changed how the trees grew here. So what uh, we've, we've now learnt the hard way, that we've done it the wrong way, but what we're left with is um, a whole lot of regrowth that has re-established where there used to be white grassland, um, and which is very flammable and burns quite hot. So if we can keep a regime of cool burn in winter, which produce basically 
um, an even amount of, um, it, it balances, um, it, it doesn't produce a lot of carbon to burn, um, then we can manage, we can prevent having really hot wildfires, which does pump out the carbon. Yeah. Well, Fortunately, we- fires are regarded as, uh, all fires are the same, but there's a huge difference. We don't want the wildfires, but if we do the cool fires and if we run animals that eat down the, the fuel, then we can really minimise the sort of damage done by fire. Okay, well, that reminds me of a, a Aboriginal speaker we had called Bruce Pascoe, and he wrote that book, Dark Emu, and he said, uh, you know, those early... Europeans who came out here, they described that land, that uh, over the Blue Mountains sort of land as crumbly and beautiful and rich, you know, rich soil. But it's not really like that now. And a lot of it seems to have blown away in dust storms. What about soil, you know, conservation of the soil or enrichment of the soil? What do you know about that? Well, if you keep grass cover on the ground, then you can keep your your soil um, cool you can keep your microbiota alive um, and you can have a healthy ecosystem. But if you overgraze it or you overburn it then you, or you pump on chemical fertilisers, you kill your microbiota and you go backwards and your soil erodes. So land management is ab- absolutely crucial. Yeah, look, I'm interested in this. We had a farmer last week called Colin Sice from Golgong, and he has enriched his soil by rotating his flock. He's got a mob of 3,000 sheep, and he says he rotates them over, say, about four-month period, and he uses intercropping. You know, he drills into the perennial grasses in the winter, drills in a, a crop like barley. And I'd like to know, is that the same sort of thing you're doing in the cattle country or, or do you just graze, graze the land? Do you move the cattle around a bit to that they don't eat it down to a stubble or how does it work on those big cattle ranges up in the north? Well, the golden sizes method is, is a, a, a method of combining grazing with cropping and it is extremely successful in increasing soil carbon and, and increasing resilience. In farms where there's just, just livestock and no cropping, then it, it's a different, it's slightly different technique because you're just you're rotating the stock around. That's a, it's an extremely uh, easy system to increase the soil carbon in that soil. The idea is that you graze an area with a large number of animals over a very short time, like a few days, and then you move them on and you don't bring them back to that area for until that pasture has completely recovered, which might be a month in some areas, it might be six months in other areas. And what, what that does, as the, the grass grows up, it takes in more carbon dioxide from the air and it puts out a large amount of carbon uh, of carbohydrates into the soil. And the plants do that in order to feed the microbes which then release the nutrients to those plants. Mm. And a byproduct of that is humus. So it is a very, very effective method of increasing soil fertility and increasing soil carbon. But that method only works if you're not putting on a lot of chemicals because um, soluble nitrates and phosphates and the herbicides, fungicides, 
they all interfere with the soil biology, and so you just don't get that taken, taking place. Okay, thank you. If you allow fair soil, well, then you, you're losing all of that benefit. Okay, thank you. Now, listeners, that other voice, that was Alan Broughton. He's the other author of this book that we're talking about tonight called Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed. Elena, I'd like another question to you. As you are a cattle farmer, we have to talk about methane. You know, everybody in the cities just says, oh, we, we'll have to go vegan and not eat any meat at all because the cows are producing meat, especially the cows are blamed. But, you know, uh, also sheep, livestock produce methane. But I read in your book that it can be reduced by 90% percent in ruminant animals so tell us how this happens well CSIRO have done a number of studies along with the um, Meat and Livestock Association um, and you can feed different things to cattle which will reduce the methane that they emit as you say by up to 90 percent um, but the other part the important part of it is that if you don't put your chemicals on the soil you're not killing the, the microbiology that is converting that methane um, into, that is absorbing it and changing it into something else. We've got a fabulous resource in the soil that will deal with all these methane emissions quite efficiently, but um, if it doesn't work if we kill the microbiology by applying artificial chemicals. I see. But what we really need is assistance for farmers to transition to an agroecological type of farming where you encourage those micro, the microflora to take the methane up. Um, livestock are a crucial key um, in converting vegetation that is, is not usable for food into high-quality protein. And they can also assist in, in the process of assisting the microbiology to store carbon in the soil and take methane out of the air. Um, and people need to understand that. It's a question of good management. Um, unfortunately, um, companies like Monsanto and other big ag companies have made billions of dollars out of selling chemical inputs to farmers um, and of trying to enforce that farmers, the, the whole worldview that this is the only way to do it. And it's complete rubbish. You know, farmers have been farming sustainably for thousands of years um, by using traditional methods, crop rotation, by using livestock of all different types to recycle crop, clean crop waste. There is no reason that we can't do that. There's one other point on, on climate change that people don't think about, which is that as temperatures go up and we get more disasters, a lot of crops are going to be a lot harder to grow. Um, and there's going to be less food. So we really need to take advantage of food resources that we don't look at at the moment as food resources because they have another label, and that's feral animals. We have a huge problem in Australia. Australia's environment is being absolutely demolished by introduced feral animals, and people regard them very sentimentally with a great deal of romance as, oh, the lovely wild horses, and, oh, look, there's Wilbur the pig, and, oh, look at the lovely deer, and <laughs> Thumper the rabbit. Oh, and, <laughs> not the rabbit. <laughs> and, of course, everybody loves that pussycat. Yeah. Unfortunately, cats are the greatest cause of native animal extinction out of anything else, worse than land clearing. And people need to appreciate these animals in the bush are feral pests 
and they are wiping out everything that we love about our environment. Okay. They are eroding our waterways. Yeah. What we have to do is appreciate that feral animals are actually extremely efficient at turning rubbish, weeds and vegetation into good quality food um, and we need to establish a native, uh, a feral animal harvest so we can do two jobs. We can control these animals and minimise the damage that they're doing to our, our river systems and catchments and the erosion they're doing to our waterways mm. and we can turn them into food and eat it. Right. If people in Australia choose not to eat some of this food, there is a huge export market in all of these animals around the world where people are quite happy to eat them. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's such a breath of fresh air. That it's really you're obviously sitting there right in the middle of these problems and you can see it so vividly, whereas we're in the city, we wouldn't, wouldn't as you say, have a, a clue about it. So thank you so much for being that bridge between the city and the country and I'm sure we'll have you on the radio again because I think there's a lot more I want to ask you. So thank you very much, Elena, and thank you, Alan. It's been a delight. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. So that was Elena Garcia and Alan Broughton, whose book is going to be launched tomorrow. It's called Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed. We didn't even get onto the corporate greed, but we'll talk a bit about that later at the end of the show in The Green Revolution, where that really becomes the problem. Next, we're going to have a little bit of music, but after that, we're going to have Kurt interviewing a friend of his who's into the Blue Carbon Sequestration Scheme and his name is Quinn Oliver. An effervescing elephant with tiny eyes and great big trunk once whispered to the tiny ear, the ear of one inferior, that by next June he'd die, oh yeah, because the tiger would roam. The little one said, oh my goodness, I must stay at home. And every time I hear a growl, I'll know the tiger's on the prowl and I'll be really safe, you know, the elephant, she told me so. Everyone was nervy, oh yeah, and a message was spread to zebra mongoose and the dirty hippopotamus who wallowed in the mud and chewed his spicy hippoplankton food and tended to ignore the word referring to survey a herd of stupid water bison oh yeah and all the jungle took fright and ran around for all the day and the night but all in vain because you see the tiger came and said who me you know I wouldn't hurt not one of you I much prefer something to chew and you're all too scanned oh yeah he ate the elephant Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. Tonight we're talking about food and carbon sequestration and my colleague Kurt Johnson is in the studio with uh, Quinn Olivier, who's a PhD student and who spends a lot of his time looking at mangroves and all sorts of salty things in the marshes. Hi, Quinn. How's it going? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me. No worries. So, Quinn is from Deakin Uni and is researching blue carbon, which is vegetated coastal ecosystems, mangroves, sea, seagrass beds, and salt marshes. Uh, his findings released in a breakthrough paper last month reveal a staggering capacity for these areas to sequester, that is, capture and store carbon. 
Um, they are so efficient that the worldwide blue carbon stocks are sequestering an amount of carbon approximately equal to all the world's forests, despite only covering a fraction of the land. Now, Australia is home to a third of all the world's salt marshes, which is Quinn's particular area of expertise. So we have a pretty large opportunity to reverse effects of climate change. But we want third of these areas destroyed by reclamation, dredging and diking. It's important we act now. Uh, so, Quinn, first up, uh, take us through the story of how carbon in the atmosphere is captured uh, by blue carbon mm-hmm. and why it is more effective than uh, vegetation on the land. Sure. So, um, yeah, so basically uh, with atmospheric carbon, it's stored uh, in carbon dioxide and methane. And through photosynthetic pathways, you're getting this atmospheric gaseous carbon put into biomass and sequestered into the soils of uh, all sorts of systems on land and in the ocean. Mm-hmm. But what we've really worked out is that these coastal vegetated systems, so seagrasses, tidal marshes and mangroves, are sequestering, so they're capturing record amounts of carbon, um, more so than tropical rainforests, a lot of these systems. So this new area of research is trying to maximise the amount of carbon getting sequestered into the areas and apply dollar values to them so that we can increase restoration around the coast of Australia and the world. Awesome. And now you've been out personally to 323 sites or <laughs> some of the I'd like to lay claim to that. No, so um, I've, I've managed the data from 323 sites for sure. I've been out to a lot of areas through New South Wales and Victoria, but this was a big collaborative project funded by CSIRO, 11 other co-authors, mm-hmm. uh, multiple universities, and, and also co-authored by uh, Peter McCready, led, led by me and Peter McCready. So I've been to many, but not all, and they're um, some beautiful and some very Stinky. Yep, yep. Uh, and so the photos, there's some photos online of you scuba diving, which has a bit of a James Bond vibe. Uh, what else is involved in collecting the samples? So what we do is uh, we try and account for the carbon stored in the sediments, not the biomass, because the turnover rate of carbon in biomass is, is a lot shorter, decades. Whereas once it's stored in the sediment, it lasts for thousands of years. So we go out and we get uh, soil cores, try to get down to one metre. Um, we'll take these samples, we'll take what vegetation's around, all of the um, environmental ecosystem kind of factors that factor in um, and then we'll analyse the carbon stocks so tonnes of carbon per metre squared in the top metre of soil mm-hmm. yep. um, so it's, it's true that this blue carbon is not currently figured in global carbon calculations uh, so what's the reason for such an epic oversight yeah I mean the science is always growing carbon accounting through the whole world has been going for decades mm-hmm. um, we used to just think atmosphere ocean and terrestrial yeah. and then they're slowly partitioned off into you know terrestrial bioregions um, different oceanic systems so blue carbon is um, yeah like I said mangroves salt marshes and seagrasses and it's on the fringe of terrestrial and oceanic so now that we've worked out how much carbon is stored there which before we didn't in the last you know, 20 years, um, now we can just partition a larger portion of oceanic carbon sink to these systems and therefore put a higher management um, weighting to it. Great. And so, yeah, so we refer to these as kind of green um, green, green assets, right? So, yep. so areas that, and other green assets are like um, areas with wide-ranging biodiversity. That's another asset. Um, so how do you think Australia at the moment is dealing with it and how how's it dealing it, dealt with it in the past? Are we getting better? 
So, um, yeah, ecosystem services or green assets, your natural mm-hmm. capital, um, a lot of things factor into that, but these coastal systems will provide increased fisheries abundance directly correlated with the amount of area um, that's rehabilitated to, say, seagrass as um, their nursery grounds for fisheries. They, they uh, reduce nutrient runoff from agriculture into the ocean. They reduce coastal erosion. They'll mitigate against sea level rise, climate change. So there's a whole range of, um, of cost benefits that we apply to them. Yeah. Um, and there's a range of funding scenarios for things like biodiversity stewardship programs to restore them. But uh, now we have carbon accounting, carbon offsetting to add to that. So we are getting better. Absolutely, yeah, we're getting better. Because I know that uh, kind of it, at the moment we are, the, the big economy in Australia is real estate and the coastal, coastal properties are the most sought after and identifying blue carbon stocks and getting the message out uh, is clearly in, on, a, on a collision course with uh, economic concerns like uh, development. Uh, so how, how's the official reception to your paper been so far? The official reception's been great. I mean, yeah, you make a good point. So in Victoria, we've got around 60 to 70% of these tidal marsh areas mm. depleted since European settlement. And like you said, a lot of that is property development, but it's also agriculture. So farming along coastlines is very popular with cattle and sheep. So what we uh, can now do with carbon accounting is we can weigh up the cost benefits if, if a uh, development company comes in, they want to build you know, a, new, a new club med, then we can say this is how much that will cost from producer and tourism, or this is how much we can get for carbon sequestration and natural wetland, biodiversity, nutrient runoff. These are the dollar values per hectare or per kilometre squared that we can apply so you can make better policy decisions. Great. And the money, the money um, that's, that's involved here is huge. Uh, just some, some stats real quick. There's 1.4 million hectares of tidal marshes with 2.1, uh, 2, 212 million tonnes of organic carbon and that has a value of $7.19 billion dollars uh which but it also has the ability to bring in 33 million dollars per year at the uh average carbon price uh for for over the last three years um is anyone taking advantage of these numbers uh at the moment because they look pretty good from here yeah, so, I mean, a lot of those numbers are actually a tiny bit higher because uh, once you put it into the Oz dollar, we, we're usually forecasting US mm-hmm. to make it more applicable to the world. Okay. So it, the, the, the values are a little bit higher. Also, this is only the value down to one metre, and lots of these tidal marshes are going to 10 metres easily worth of organic carbon, but we just forecast for one metre because that's what we get our hands on, so we don't like to extrapolate. Um, so... Oh, the other thing is it's the carbon offset voluntary market of $12.10 per tonne. It used to be 25 when we had a carbon tax. So if we implement, again, uh-huh. a policy, you can double that number instantly. Right. So, yeah, the figures are good. Um, and what it allows us to do is restore these areas with the, with the new funding, new stewardship programs, whether it's on a catchment scale or state scale or, or the federal government. Um, whether we're taking advantage of it at the moment, I think it's something that will come through in the next one to two years for sure. Right now, the Emission Reduction Fund um, is is contemplating including blue carbon into methodology, CSIRO, mm-hmm. and our lab works with them to do that. So we're waiting to hear back whether that's going to go through. Great. And the other area that you've been working really hard on is getting uh, more data from around Australia. So how would you rate just how comprehensive the picture we have uh, at the moment here? 
What's new? Yeah, I mean, it can always be improved, right? When you model any scenario, the, the, the increased data will get you a more accurate outcome. Mm-hmm. So right now we have very comprehensive from southern and southeastern Australia. What we would want to do is probably take some more data from all three states across the northern coastline of Australia and, and very everywhere else in the world. So there's a lot of these systems through Southeast Asia, through the whole Mediterranean belt of the world. So if we can increase the amount of data we have, that we can increase forecasting, the accuracy of our results and policy scenarios to get the best bang for buck and natural outcomes. Okay, so so based on what you've got so far, so the picture that you have at the moment, um, what is the next step that you'd like to see the government take? I'd like to see policy? the government take? Yeah. I mean... It's hard to comment, really. But, uh, they have the methodology for including blue carbon into emission reduction fund. Yep. So obviously we had the um, the uh, carbon farming initiative with terrestrial terrestrial planting of farms. Um, yep. They changed that to the emission reduction fund. That now allows other methodology of uh, of emission release um, prevention. So if we can include blue carbon to that, we'll get a federal funding pool for all of this research and rehabilitation. Right now it's all based on voluntary markets and uh, other biodiversity outcomes comes okay so thank you so much for uh coming in coming into the studio um is there anyone that uh you co-authored the paper with with 11 other scientists is that right yeah yeah so csiro funded it um 11 other authors uh it was published in scientific reports and peter mccready my supervisor was the other lead author so thanks a lot to them and yeah Great. Thanks a lot for coming in, Quinn. Could I just pop in one more question? Because of the big dieback of mangroves in Darwin Mm. last year or around the same time as the coral bleaching happened, how are you um, thinking about that? You know, the global warming in the water is a big threat to the mangroves, isn't it? Yeah, so the dieback of mangroves is probably a little bit outside my area of expertise. But um, from what I understand is when you get these increased hotter, you know, drought conditions, you are going to have diebacks of the northern northern areas of mangroves. What uh, a few really influential scientists are asking at the moment is, is how long it will take to get those mangroves back and if in that time how much of the carbon is going to be released. So, for instance, in Jarvis Bay, um, Peter McCready, my supervisor, has a study showing that after, after the degradation of seagrass beds, you release 70% of the carbon in the top metre and that Mm. carbon is thousands of years old. So thousands of years old getting released within 20 years of degradation. So if they come back, maybe good. If they don't, very bad. We'll Mm. see. Well, why does it last for thousands of years? Oh, so basically in these coastal systems, you have anoxic conditions, so very low oxygen conditions. That reduces the amount of microbes that can eat all that little carbon, just like we eat food. So when you have no oxygen in the sediments, it stays in there for a very long amount of time. Mm. You also have what's called an abundance of sulfides from, from, from the ocean. Sulfides mm. are very abundant in the ocean as opposed to freshwater systems. So these things combine reduce bacterial remineralization mm. of stored carbon, Therefore, you don't have CO2 and methane getting released to the atmosphere like you would in a terrestrial system. Yeah, Yeah. that's fascinating. Thank you so much, Rich, and thanks, Kurt. That was really good.